We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. If you'd like to use the Bible there in your seats, that's page uh, 957. Paul has been addressing a question, actually an assertion by some within the church in Corinth that they should be able to eat at the temple sacrificial meals in the pagan temples in Corinth because it's just food. There's no reality to the idols. Two weeks ago, Paul kind of addressed that and asking them about their assumption that they should be able to exercise their rights. And then last week, he talked about his example of personal sacrifices, our call to follow Christ. And then he begins to draw his argument to a close. Let's hear what God says through his servant Paul to the church of Corinth, to the church gathered today. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 22. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that your father, that your fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many, are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we have heard your word read aloud. We pray that already we have been attentive to it, that your spirit has been at work. But now we pause and ask that you would be glorified in these moments of reflection and study, 
of the proclamation of your word, that I would set forth your truth for your people, and that all that falls short would be quickly forgotten. Be glorified in these moments, we pray. Amen. Yard season, yard sale season is gearing up. Just a few weeks ago, Pembroke here had its town-wide sale. It's a time for scouring the internet to find out where those yard sales are going to be, for haggling and bargaining for those deals. But while the saying sounds good on the surface, we know that we don't want to get more than we bargain for, right? It sounds good to get more than you bargain for, to get more, and you bargain for something and you have more. But most of the time when we talk about getting more than we bargain for, it's not a good thing. You go to the yard sale and you find a box of old Hardy Boy and Nancy Drew books and you want to share those books with your kids or your grandkids and so you take them home only a few days later to begin seeing silverfish all over your house and need to call the exterminator. Or you find that jacket. You know, the jacket. The one that makes you look cool. The one that reminds you that there is still a chance for you to be somewhat fashionable. And it's only $10. And so you grab it from the pile as quickly as you can. Hand them the $10 and take it home. Only once you get it inside the house to realize that it has a very special smell. And that no amount of Febreze or times through the washing machine, or even taking it to the dry cleaner, can rid it of that smell. And so you have to throw away the jacket. You don't have the jacket, you don't have your $10, you don't have your laundry detergent, and the 30 bucks you gave to the dry cleaner. The Corinthians are in danger of getting far more than they are bargaining for. They desire to eat at the temple sacrifices, There are these opportunities to come and eat at festivals and business gatherings here in the temples to eat good food, to have some good wine. They can gain in their social status, in their networking, and probably for most of them have better food than they would have on a regular day-to-day basis. But it comes with a steep cost. Though the food isn't polluted itself, Though the idols of silver and gold aren't themselves anything, yet to eat at such sacrificial meals in the temple with their pagan neighbors is to participate to fellowship with demons. To join themselves with those who are opposed to the Lord himself. Trying to get more, trying to take advantage of the system, they have opened themselves up to idolatry, and to betrayal of the Lord himself, their Savior. For us this morning, we may not be seeking opportunities to fellowship with demons. In fact, we might have to search really hard for such opportunities in our day and age. But there are temptations just the same to idolatry, to betrayal against he who has saved us, temptations to divide our devotion and our desire for more. Which puts us in the service of that which we think will get us more. That if we strike the right deal, we can have just a little bit more. A a little bit more work. 
and life will be good. A little bit more leisure and rest and vacation, that will bring peace for us. A little bit more money, a little bit more savings, and we'll be happy. A reputation or achievement. Underneath such idolatry often lies the assumption that to live well is to take what we can get, to strike the best bargains, to make the best deals, to get while the getting is good. But as Paul confronts the Corinthians with strong warnings, he's also offering them something. He's offering them a reminder of the graciousness of God. The propensity of God to give. As they seek to take, as they seek to get, as they seek to build for themselves, and Paul confronts their danger, he at the same time is drawing their attention to a God who is gracious. A God of compassion, a God who saves and who rescues. So this morning as we, confronted by the words of Scripture, of Paul's words to Corinth, are confronted by our own tendency to take, to build, and in so doing, potentially, to give ourselves over to idolatry. Would instead our attention be drawn to God and who He is and what He does? For in this passage, we see a God who gives. Not only a God who gives, but a God who gives Himself. And in the midst of difficulty and trial and temptation, a God who gives us a way out to whom we should respond with giving ourselves wholly to him. As Paul begins to speak to the Corinthians, he points to the reality of the God who gives. He's answering this assertion that some of the Corinthians have that they can eat of this food sacrificed to these idols within the temple precincts. And as he does so, he draws them to consider the larger story of God's people. Again, these are largely Gentile believers, largely Roman and Greek by background, and not Jewish, but he draws them to the larger story of God's people, including the people of the Old Testament, particularly the Exodus people, the people who wandered in the wilderness. And in the very first verses he, of this passage, he reminds them of the saving work of God. We'll come back to this kind of sacramental language of being baptized. But first of all, he speaks about the Exodus when he gives them freedom from Egypt. The cloud, if you will, that God caused to appear to lead them where they were to go. And when Pharaoh's army approached them as they were at the side of the Red Sea to obscure them from Pharaoh's sight. Speaks of leading them through the Red Sea. The manna he fed them with in the desert when they were hungry. The water that they drank from the rock that we talked about with the kids this morning to quench their thirst. But as verse 5 says, many were overthrown in the wilderness. And then he goes on from verse 6 to describe multiple events. It refers to Numbers 11 where fire of the Lord breaks out among the people because they're complaining and quarreling. He references Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16, where the people say, Moses, who are you to lead us? Numbers 20, where they are hungry and grumbling about food and drink again, and fiery serpents appear, and many are dying from their bites. Verse 8 refers to the worship 
of Baal of Peor, where they allowed other tribes settling around them to lead them into false worship of false gods and then sexual immorality to the destruction of tens of thousands of them. When you look at these passages that, that Paul is referencing, these events in the history of God's people, when you go to those chapters in Exodus and in Numbers, what you see is there's this common thread of dissatisfaction. That there is this common thread of desire. The people wanted something, and they either grumbled about it, or quarreled about it, or they sought to get what they wanted from other gods. And so very often, most of these passages in some way refer to food. As the people want to go to the temple precincts of Athena and Artemis to get some nice steak and wine. In Exodus 16, instead of asking for food, they complained that God had led them in the desert to die. In Exodus 17, instead of asking for water in the wilderness, they quarreled. In number 16, instead of remembering that God had given them Moses to deliver them out of captivity, they wanted someone new to lead them. Over and over again, they grumbled against God or they turned to idols to disastrous consequences because they forgot that God gives. That God had given them deliverance from oppression in Egypt. That God had given them a way to escape from Pharaoh. That God had led them across dry land. That God had fed them. That God had given them water. And the longer they went, the more forgetful it seems that they were in the wilderness. They forgot that God gives. Before we reach for more, before we complain about what we have or look for something else to satisfy, consider that the God that we are called to worship is a God who gives. That one of the reasons we are called to worship Him is because we look at this world. We see its beauty and its size and its majesty, and it points to something even greater, the God who created it, the God who sustains it, the God who provides in the midst of it. And instead of saying, what don't I have, to consider the God who has given us what we do have. The God who gave us life. The God who gave us his image. And as those who bear his image, dignity and worth and value and purpose. The God who gives us our daily bread. The God who gives salvation. The God who gives rescue from enemies. The God who continues to give. The thing about those occasions in the history of God's people is that most of the times of destruction and disaster came not at the beginning of the exodus and their wilderness wanderings. That these times of God showing his judgment upon them, pouring out his wrath upon them, was not the first time that they raised a stink. No, they were upset about being hungry and God gave them manna. They were upset about thirsty, God gave them water from the rock. They were fearful that God had led them to die at the hands of Pharaoh and he caused the Red Sea to split. No, it was only after over and over and over again they complained and quarreled and threatened Moses and sought after other gods. Even after they had sat down and created another god 
a golden calf to worship as Moses was speaking to the God who had delivered them from captivity. It's only then, after trying his patience over and over again, after they had shown themselves devoted to things other than him, that God allowed these difficulties to follow them. He continued to give in the midst of their rejection and rebellion. Instead of turning against him, instead of turning away from him, we are invited to turn to him and to receive from him what we need because he has over and over and over again shown himself to be a God who gives, who not only is willing to give, not only desires to give, but is powerful to give and to give good gifts, to give sweet manna, to give water that is a spring from a rock, pure and clear and satisfying, to not only give them an escape route from Egypt, but to completely destroy their enemies. To turn to a God who gives good gifts because not only does he give food and friends and work and purpose and beauty and art, he gives us himself. As Paul is directing the attention of the Corinthians to consider what they might be doing in their worship of the living God by choosing to participate in these sacrificial meals, he draws their attention to the fact that not only does God give them what they need to survive, food and drink and these other things, but God offers himself. As Paul describes what God's people received in their exodus and wilderness wanderings, he refers to their spiritual food and their spiritual drink. And in that sense, he's not saying that they were somehow internally nourished apart from some physical substance, but it's to point to the supernatural. The Spirit of God, the power of God was what brought about manna. They didn't just find food. They didn't just plant crops and had a good harvest, God sent food from heaven. God sent rock, water from the rock. These things came from God by the supernatural work of God. These weren't just instances of daily bread, but God giving directly of himself through his power. But then we read something quite profound, and I want us to not pass over it. In verse 4, he says, continuing to describe the spiritual food and the drink, he says, they drank from the same spiritual rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock of Christ. I read from Exodus 17 earlier for the kids, so you don't need to be reminded fully what was happening there, but pay attention again to what God says to Moses that he should do. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and the water shall come out of it and the people will drink. People at the end were asking the question, was the Lord among us? And not only was the Lord among them, but he placed himself upon the rock that he instructed Moses to strike. He was the rock, as Paul says. 
Christ was that rock. Christ, the second person of the Trinity, eternally of the triune God, was present in the presence of the Lord on that rock as it was struck. And in that striking of the rock is a picture, or to use the language of theology, a type of Christ to come. Not just a picture, not just a symbol, but the reality, because Christ was present at the rock. It was Christ who was at the rock, struck by Moses for the people. And it was Christ when the people grumbled for a Savior. When people had rebelled in sin against God. It was Christ when the people cried for Barabbas' release. It was Christ beaten by the Roman fists. It was Christ struck by their whips. It was Christ on the, ro- on the cross who had nails driven through his flesh so that we who thirst might drink from a well that springs up to eternal life when we drink of him. God gives himself to us in Christ, who was born, who walked among us, who taught us, who healed, who was beaten, who was crucified, and who rose so that he might continue to give himself to us. The whole point of the Exodus was to bring God's people not just out of captivity, but to bring them out of captivity so that they could come to God and worship Him. So that as God said in His covenant promises, that they would be His and He would be their God. Christ gave Himself on the cross in order to give Himself to us always. Paul references that in verses 16 through 17 here. He's making this analogy for them in comparing these sacrificial meals, but this is what Paul says of the Lord's Supper. We don't derive all of our theology of the Lord's Supper because that's not the main point of what he's saying, but he still says something striking and important. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, for the Corinthians, they seem to have this sense that the sacraments had some kind of blessing, some kind of magical properties. Like, if you partake of these meals, then you are kind of protected from evil forces, you'll have a better life, you'll have more blessing. And so you could see why he would use the baptism language. Like, yes, God's people were delivered. They were baptized in the cloud and the sea, but that didn't mean that everything worked out for them. They ate of the bread, but then they still grumbled against God and suffered. Paul is pushing back on this sense that this is some kind of sacrificial meal that where if you make a sacrifice and eat at the Lord's Supper, that somehow you will be protected. Because he says that's not the point. The point of the Lord's Supper is not the offering of a sacrifice. The point of the Lord's Supper is participation in Christ. It's fellowship with God himself. We who have Christ, when we come to the Lord's Supper, receive Christ. And so the implication is, why do we spend ourselves in service of idols for so much less than God himself? C.S. Lewis writes, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures 
fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What is the feast of an hour? What is a few decades of sexual self-satisfaction? Or even a lifetime of reputation and fame compared to the eternal treasure, not only of salvation, but what salvation saves us to life with the everlasting, eternal God who made all of creation who forgives sin, who heals our diseases, who offers eternal life so that we could have him who we were made for forever. What could compare? And so with a God who offers himself, we are not alone in the face of temptation. We are not alone in times of trial, but he gives us a way out. Paul has addressed the temptations, failures, and discipline of God's people in the wilderness. And then in verse 11, he tells the Corinthians, he tells us that it's for our instruction. That God preserves, through the power of his spirit, the testimony of what happened for the people of later ages. Verse 11, he says this specifically. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We live in the last days. We live in the days where Christ has been revealed. And as many are being brought to salvation in Christ, there will be many who stand up in opposition to Christ. There will be trial and persecution and tribulation for those who follow after Christ. And so Paul offers these examples, not just to say, see how they messed up, but so that the Corinthians and us today might learn from them and respond differently. It's not a story of the inevitability of rebellion and destruction, but it's so that we might do differently in the face of trial and temptation. Now, Paul deals with some specific sins here. First of all, Paul talks about sexual immorality. And it kind of seems like, Paul, are you just consumed with sex? Is is always sex? Is, Is that just what it is, Paul? But But in Exodus 32, when God's people made the golden calf and sat down to worship it and eat at the table, they got up to play. That word there, play, speaks of sexual promiscuity. It was the worship of Baal Peor that caused God's people later to pursue not only other gods, but pursue foreign gods. Women, and in that sexual immorality, bring the judgment on God. And it was certainly the case in the pagan temples of Corinth that even when cultic prostitution was not the practice, that when they overindulged in food, and they overindulged in drink in a festive environment, it quite often led to indulgence of other kinds. So Paul speaks against sexual immorality. He also speaks about grumbling, because as we saw in those passages, so often what led to their idolatry, what led them to pursue other gods, was their dissatisfaction. So as Paul is confronting the sin of sexual immorality, as he's confronting the sin of grumbling, or putting Christ to the test, saying, if you were really good, you would do this, he is talking about the bookends that surround idolatry. 
the derived idolatry through our dissatisfaction and then being given over to idolatry to allow it to lead us into all kinds of further sins. Paul confronts those sins, but he says the hope is not in us to resist those sins, but in God. Notice how he responds. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Notice it doesn't say you are strong, you are wise, you are holy, you are good. It says God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's not that temptation or trial doesn't exist that is stronger than us, that is too much for us. But through the faithfulness of God, by his presence and by his power, he may provide a way out for us who lean not on our own strength and our own understanding, but instead on him. But it requires some honesty with ourselves. That if God is the one who gives a way out, that the way out is probably not in our own strength. And so verse 12, first of all, says, we need to admit that we're not as strong as we think. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands Take heed lest he fall. It is as soon as you think that you are strong, as soon as you look at someone else's life and says, I can't believe they fell into that sin. There's no way I would betray my loved one that way. There's no way I would take that money for myself. There's no way you catch me doing that. As soon as we think we're strong, so very often are we prone to fall. I'm going to carry all 20 bags from the grocery store, from the car, into the house. And that's when you stumble and trip. And not only do you not make it, but then all of those bags are ripped open. And what you thought was saving you 10 minutes has cost you 20 minutes. God delivers us a way out through admitting our weakness and our need of him. And also in admitting that we are not as unique as we think. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That's part of the benefit of Paul going back to the Old Testament and talking about the Israelites who left Egypt. They had same temptations. To eat at sacrificial meals that were unpleasing to God. To let that lead them into sexual temptation. To grumble and say, we deserve more. It's not enough. Paul says, your situation is not as unique as you think it is. When we think that our temptations and our trials are unique, we tend to think that no one understands, and that therefore there is no help for us. And while oftentimes there may be unique circumstances, what we are tempted to and what we are tempted by is not. Instead of saying no one will understand, we are urged to confess our temptation to sin or the sins that we have given into, to ask for prayer, to admit that though maybe no one else can walk through that trial for us, they can walk through it with us. Because God has given us one another. And it also means admitting we take advantage of the ways that God gives us out of temptation and trial by admitting that our holiness is more important than our dignity. Sometimes the response to temptation is to fight temptation 
by flight from temptation. He tells the Corinthians, he tells us to flee from idolatry. Earlier in chapter 6, he talked about fleeing from sexual immorality. You think of Joseph with Potiphar's wife. She offers sexual opportunity that would be disastrous to his holiness and disastrous to his standing, and Joseph doesn't say, you know what, you know, let's just be friends. He knew the danger of that situation to her and to himself, and he flees such that he leaves behind his cloak. Fleeing from sin is not a dignified withdrawal. It is full out running for our lives sometimes. Don't mess with it. Don't dabble with it, Paul says. Sometimes the way that God gives us to face temptation is to run from the opportunity to sin. There are circumstances where we may be tempted to sin, which necessitates saying we aren't as strong as we think. Our situation can't justify the sin, and we just need to get out no matter what it looks like. That we go to a party with some friends and may find out that what is going on there means we just have to leave. Even if we have to call mom and dad embarrassed to admit it. It might mean that acknowledging that an app on your phone is just too dangerous for you to handle and to give it over to a trusted friend to lock your phone or delete that app for your well-being. Or to acknowledge that the requirements to succeed in a certain job, the temptations to break rules and hurt people and defy God are too much and you need to quit and lose the prestige and the salary that comes with it. The admission of our weakness, the confessing before others, sometimes fleeing, can seem too much. It can seem too costly. It can, can seem too embarrassing if it weren't for the fact that God has given us himself. And the opportunity to say no to these things, to flee from these things, to resist temptation is the opportunity for us to embrace fully the God who has given himself to us. At the end of the passage, Paul wants them to give themselves. God wants us to give ourselves fully to God. In verses 14 through 21, he, he talks about this logic of fellowship. He, he says, when we drink of the cup, when we bless this cup, we are participating with Christ, right? But at the same time, when we are eating the bread, we're sharing the bread, and so we're fellowshipping together. So our fellowship with God impacts our fellowship and communion with each other. You want to share with your neighbors in this meal in which they are eating of this meal in which, though you may not intend it, they are offering sacrifice to demons. And so you are sharing in demons. He says you cannot fellowship with God and demons. You cannot serve God and mammon. We so very often think that we can play both sides. We say, oh, have you read the latest news? You, you can eat this berry, acai berry, or, or, or you eat enough quinoa or, or blueberries with all of their oxidants, these superfoods, and you can be so healthy. And because you have all these super healthy foods, you say, well, I can have a little extra pudding for desserts and the extra liter of soda. You can't eat superfoods while eating junk foods to be healthy. 
You can't bet it all in red and black at the roulette table and come out ahead. Not only won't it work out for them, not only is it impossible for them to truly fellowship with God while they're fellowshipping with these demons, but to do so is to challenge God. It's a provocation of God. That's why he asked in verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Now, we need to acknowledge that for most of us, the word jealousy conjures for us insecure people. It's insecure people who get jealous. They're worried that their spouse, their friends don't like them. They're insecure, so they're always fearful or anxious or controlling of the behavior of others. God self-reveals himself as jealous multiple times throughout Scripture. Because jealousy, in that sense, is he desires that which is his. That is, he will brook no rivals for his glory. So when we are willing to participate with demons, even indirectly in fellowshipping in this way, we are giving what is God's, his glory, his honor, and ourselves to idols. We ally ourselves to the enemies of God, and that will provoke his jealousy. Rather than provoke his jealousy, should we not delight that he is jealous for us? Often prophets like Zechariah and Ezekiel and Joel speak of God's jealousy as his reason for redemption. Joel 2.18, Then the Lord became jealous for his land, and he had pity on his people. It was God looking at his people, who he had covenanted to, who he had promised to offer his love and compassion and salvation to, and said, because they are mine, I will act for their salvation. If we align ourselves with God's enemies, can we resist his destruction? Can we hold on to God and his enemies and survive? No. So lest we be destroyed by holding on to idols, to taking what we want through what the world pretends it can offer, let's instead hold on to God. Instead of fighting for what only pretends to be more, to rest in the loving faithful embrace of God from whom, if we are his, no power, no force, not even death itself, can remove us from his grasp. Getting more than we bargain for, despite what it sounds like, is usually not a good thing. But we do like to get more than we paid for. The truth of Scripture is we didn't pay at all. That God made this world and he made us. He gave us life and purpose and beauty and all these things. And when we rebelled and rejected, he gave himself up for our salvation so that we could have him back. So that we might give ourselves to him instead. What bargain can we make? What deal can we have with the world that is greater than what God has given us? Let's pray. What is greater, Lord? Nothing. Would you help us to remember that? Would you help us to live that way? In the name of Christ, amen.